0: Greetings from UNICEF Office of Research, in acenti and welcome to our hundreds of participants from all corners of the world. I'm your host, Sarah Crow, and this is the third Leading Minds Online, what the experts say on coronavirus and children. Today we'll be looking at support for families during this extraordinary time and beyond. And with me, we have some great panellists joining us from different parts of the world from Ethiopia, Washington DC in the US, from Sweden, Serbia, and here in Central Europe. I'm going to be speaking to them in a minute and my colleague David Anthony will be taking a deep dive into solutions, David.
1: Thanks Sarah, welcome. Yes, I'll be looking at the Q&A coming from the audience in about 30 to 40 minutes and then going into our solution session with a poll question. Over to you Sarah.
0: Thanks, David. Warnings from a new analysis by UNICEF and Save the Children show economic fallout of COVID-19 could push up to 86 million more children into household poverty by the end of 2020, an increase of 15%. In the rush to flatten the curve against the pandemic, another curve has spiked. And the worst, sadly, is yet to come. The impact of the global economic crisis caused By the pandemic and related containment policies has led to a double blow for children and families getting the right social protection schemes in place has never mattered as much as it does today studies show that the total number of children living below the national poverty line now in low and middle income countries could reach up to 672 million by year end that is In a few months' time, really, six months' time. Nearly two thirds of these children live in sub Saharan Africa and South Asia. Perhaps surprisingly, countries across Europe and Central Asia could see the most significant increase, up to 44% across the region. Latin America and Caribbean could see a 22% increase. So, in the rush to protect lives from the virus, who is protecting livelihoods? and how what does history tell us that we can apply for now and the future indeed the very future of social protection itself is under threat as we hurtle towards the inevitable recession where will the money come from that is the big question do we in fact need a covid 19 Marshall plan as some global experts have proposed So many questions, but before I go to the panelists, let's take a look at some more data and what measures governments have put in place so far. child poverty is not inevitable. That's a key message here. So let me start now by putting a general question to all the panelists for a brief response, please, and introduce yourselves first. Here's the question. Is the economic cost of COVID-19 lockdowns causing an even greater crisis for children and families in their hour of need, with potentially devastating Consequences for the future. I'm going to turn first to Washington, DC, to Hugo Gentilini at the World Bank, uh, and then to Natalia rossi from UNICEF, and then on to Dr. Joan and Starting first with you, Hugo, please introduce yourself and give me your response to that question. Thanks. Hi
2: Sarah, uh, this is uh, Ugo Gentilini. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, the global lead for social assistance at the World Bank. And uh, what we see is that countries are at different stages in managing the crisis. Most low- and middle-income countries have seen the rate of infections going up. And in many, many fragile states, uh, we are at the very stage of preventing irreversible damages to families and children's potential. South Sudan has uh, 24 ICU beds for 12 million people. Zimbabwe has one ventilator every 3 million people. And to minimize risks, there are lockdowns and these have impacted enormously 80% of workers and their families who rely on informal work and social protection is helping to partially compensate for it. But while being asked to stay home, homes themselves can be a vector for the pandemic. 96% of housing in Africa does not meet WHO's COVID standards. So families are really trapped in this conundrum of health risk at work, health risk at home, And social protection is one of the bright lights, and there is scope for some optimism based on practices that we see emerging, but let's not be complacent. We are in a very volatile, uncertain situation regarding the nature of the crisis. So it's not clear yet whether current social protection are fully adequate to manage the pandemic.
0: Thank you, Hugo. Uh, Natalia.
3: Good morning, good afternoon. My name is Natalia Winder. I'm the Associate Director for Social Policy in UNICEF. And thank you very much for having me in this conversation. Um, To answer your question, Sarah, yes, most definitely. And I think it's very important to acknowledge and I think explicitly identify why this crisis is particularly different. Of course, we're learning from lessons from previous crises, both economic and health, but I think it's very important to understand why it's different and how it's impacting children. The pandemic and I think the associated containment policies have a very clear impact on, on health systems and other social services, but also on livelihoods, which of course and, uh, have direct implications for, for children. We know that in the context of economic downturns or economic shocks and in the absence of adequate policies such as social protection or security, Many families are unfortunately forced to resort to ne- to negative coping mechanisms that impact their livelihoods, their ability to accumulate assets, but they also have very direct impacts on children, impacts in their ability to access food, healthy diets, um, putting them um, phasing no impossible choices between investing on children's well-being or in their productive and and recovery activities no. Thank you
0: Natalia, I'm going to stop you there, just one really short snappy answers if you don't mind now, for the very first question I'm going to go now to Dr. Joan Yanyuki. your thoughts about this impact on children right now because of these lockdowns, Joan.
4: Thank you Sarah, so I'm Dr. Joan Yanyuki. I'm the Executive Director of African Child Policy Forum based in Addis Ababa Ethiopia. Um, and already we are seeing that the efforts to contain the pandemic are largely health focused, but in the efforts to flatten the curve, we seem to have forgotten the principle, the very basic principle of do no harm. So we are seeing a lot of harm emerging, harm for families which are losing incomes because they live on daily wages, children facing increasing violence, abuse and exploitation, simply because they are cut off from school and it is in school that they have a safe haven. And so we need to find ways of operating differently, finding ways that do not cause harm, programs and policies that are holistic and which build protection into response, and also to pick up and act quickly and urgently on the warning signs before the little harm becomes boils down into devastating consequences. Thank, Thank you, you,
0: Joan. Over to now, the three next uh, guests or three next panelists. Uh, starting first with Stockholm, Sweden, SIDA, Ulrika Long, and then I'm going to go to Serbia, to Gordana Matkovic, and finally to our own Dominic Richardson at UNICEF Innocenti. So Ulrika, is it causing harm, as Joan
5: has intimated? Uh, Yes, Uh, thank you. My name is Ulrika Long, Senior Policy Advisor for Social Protection at SIDA. And um, we see that the COVID-19 is, the effects are only starting to be seen now. And we see that the effects will increase as we go forward and we cannot fully know, but but from what we see is that it, the pandemic will have great uh, effects and increased child poverty, not only through the pandemic, but also through the decreasing capacity of health system. And this decreased capacity of health system alone is, expected to cause over 1 million child deaths in the nearest six months is the estimate. At the same time, we see the increasing poverty and the economic effects will also be severe for children. Um, Just to give one example is that uh, we now see that around 360 million children will lose their daily school meal when schools are closed due to COVID-19. And so we see that food insecurity will increase for children in the poorest households, and this is in a situation where we already had high child poverty, and we already had a situation where one in three children in Africa are stunted, so that their development is hampered for the future. Thank you, thank you, Ulrika. We'll come back to some further examples in just a minute.
0: Uh, turning now to Serbia, Gordana Matkovic. Your thoughts is it
4: harmful? How harmful?
6: And also, program director, Center for Social Policy in Belgrade, and. Uh, yes uh, i think that uh, in in serbia since children and uh, families with children are already at higher risk of poverty uh, that uh, and the measures were targeted at pensioners and uh, adults uh, i am sure unfortunately that uh, children will be victims of the of, of the crisis i mean uh, during the lockdown extremely poor for example families living in roma settlements uh, and families living from hands to to mouth earning in informal economy are actually um, the consequences for them were devastating and in the future of course it very much depends how the unemployment and benefits and social protection will 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 look like but um, Unfortunately, they might be disproportionately affected by the crisis.
0: Dominic Richardson, a worrying picture so far. Your thoughts there, please.
7: Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, um, I I, I want to broadly agree with all of the panelists. What we're going to see is is going to worsen the conditions uh, for children and families globally. Uh, I think it's already been mentioned, but the unique nature of COVID-19 and its effects through the lockdowns is not fully understood in terms of its implications uh, to a range of children's outcomes from violence, stress, digital risks and online child abuse, which we see is increasing in some cases. We mentioned the weakening of human services and health services, inequalities and remote learning, uh, simple anxiety and stress and mental health. on top of this, the economic effects uh, will need to be understood in more detail. Sector by sector, there are going to be different effects and country by country. What we have uh, really is, is a, a, a lot of detail to unpick, understanding pre existing inequalities and risks, and Ulrika mentioned some of those. Uh, the inequality of the lockdown and the effects on that, some sectors are working better than others and the inequality in social protection and economic responses following. If we could learn from the financial crisis and from early results from COVID-19, we can see uh, that dips and contractions in economic uh, growth, um, GDP per capita, are associated to increases in extreme poverty, food insecurity, infant mortality, uh, and and many more uh, outcomes. Uh, Thank you, Dominic. I'm just going to
0: stop you there because we're going to return to some of those points. Uh, I'd just like to keep with the UNICEF theme, uh, and it's a very bleak picture, but there must be also some kind of possibilities now that we could learn from this this moment. And uh, turning to Natalia Winder, uh, with with this sort of sense of the, the response from the pandemic, are you also able to see some opportunities here, perhaps, to push through strong protection, uh, social protection reform that puts families and women and children at the heart of policy uh, that Dominic just mentioned.
3: Without doubt. And I think we need to take advantage of of this momentum. Uh, Social protection has been one of the key pillars of the immediate response. And we've seen that thanks to Hugo's and uh, support and work on on having a sense of of the picture. But I think it's important to acknowledge that the crisis has also highlighted um, some some additional challenges that require some innovative thinking. Now, for example, and I'm just gonna mention two because there's barriers. One is the the issue of the missing middle or the the additional challenges of the informal sector. A a part of the population that is vulnerable, that is not eligible for maybe some social assistance programs or not able to contribute to formal labor market, social security programs, and therefore is out um, of any protection, and and of course um, linked to this, the importance of the care economy, access to family-friendly uh, policies, an economy that continues to be invisible and not properly re- remunerated. So, of course, social protection needs to be seen as a key strategy to mitigate immediate income impacts, to help families to actually abide with the containment policies and not face the impossible choice between exposure or generating income. Um, but also as a core pillar of the inclusive process. And I think here it's important to have a very conscious voice around the importance of building systems, not just one program or focus on the cash program interventions, but a wider set of systematic responses, looking at unemployment benefits, the importance of health insurance, um, and and I repeat the importance of having very specific access to family care, family-friendly policies to really see an impact on, on children. It's an easy opportunity to also address some of the the challenges that we still have before COVID. For example, issues of coverage: only one third of children are effectively covered by social protection, for instance. Um, and be you know thinking about how to uh, reduce that cap in terms in terms of coverage, in terms of adequacy based on what the children under under three needs vis-a-vis the youth or the adolescents. So trying to have also a closer look in terms of adequacy of policies, looking not only at the short-term risk management role that social protection plays, but also in the longer-term um, recovery phase. No, and, and this is, I think, linking a bit more maybe to, to other parts of the discussion of being very vocal on the role of social protection, the, the role that social protection should have in building back better, and really um, including it as a one key sector of the recovery packages, a sector that needs to be protected in the context of, of recession, at a minimum while of course expanding investments in the in the long run
0: so natalia you speak about building back better um can you think of some of the good examples that countries are actually promoting these innovative policy changes right now uh that that actually could be part of the building back better that transformation transformative uh social protection networks uh way beyond this response because now we have to look at being COVID ready well into the future. Uh, Can you name some good examples you think that are actually uh, in
3: place right now? I think there's very interesting examples across regions um, of how countries have really taken the, have really prioritized and put social protection at the center. Like Peru, that this has a specific bonus for rural households, specifically targeting independent workers, for example, or vulnerable families. Um, countries like Argentina, where it has expanded its universal child allowance, um, or being Armenia, that has also included a, a top-up around its family benefit. Uh, but even if we look at those, at this very important commitments, I still think that it's important to start going a bit further in not only providing this short-term um, support, but also thinking of investing some of the resources in making the systems much more sustainable. Um, enhancing its coverage and enhancing their adequacy for different livelihoods and different age groups.
0: Thank you, thank you Natalia. A lot to a lot to think about there. Uh, turning now to the Balkans, former former Balkans region or the Balkans region, Eastern Europe, and of course uh, Serbia, where Dr. Uh, Gordana Matkovic is. Uh, you have a very specific issue in your part of the world, uh, as in many others, but. Uh, the massive loss of remittances from locals working in high-income countries first forced to return a home and now uh, facing deep long-term unemployment as as sectors particularly around tourism and so on and the livelihoods the impact on families how are you going to be able to deal with this domino effect uh, in your region uh, Gordana?
6: Yes, let me tell, I mean, the the, the fact is that remittances are very important. They're around 10% of the GDP. So when you compare that with the social uh, protection expenditures, it's almost half, I mean. And the the important thing is also that, uh, yes, many families actually lost remittances, but also, many, many uh, migrant workers returned. For example, uh, in Serbia, that was the case. And they will enter the labor market. They will try to find uh, a job and job opportunities. It might affect unemployment. It might affect the level of wages. And so actually not only those families that receive, Uh, remittances will be affected but much wider segment of the population i'm not sure that we have any any uh, policy measures that we can uh, actually uh, provide but we need to keep our social safety nets flexible and uh, so that we are able to support more families uh, there is also some thinking uh, about expanding child allowances to, for example, all those that live in Roma settlements, since they are uh, many. Many of, of, of these families are extremely vulnerable. Uh, to implement some type of area-based targeting, basically, and through that to be able to support at least those that are most vulnerable and who lost remittances or lost job opportunities because many migrant workers came back.
0: Right, so you have a number, you've got migrants, you've got Roma, you've got a lot of marginalized communities and vulnerable communities as well, uh, you were a politician not long after the war broke out or the end of, uh, end of the Balkan region, the end of Yugoslavia, 25-plus years ago now. Uh, big donors came to your side at that time. This time around, it's going to be very different, isn't it? So where is the cash going to come from? How can you modify uh, you know, from what you learned in the past to the present and indeed the future?
6: Oh, yes, it was very different. I mean, first of all, um, now there are many poor ca- countries competing for the funds, and uh, back then Serbia was eligible for either resources, so Serbia is in a different position now uh, also, and by the way, our government said that, that they don't need uh, support from IMF and uh, European Commission, but when I looked uh, what were the measures that we implemented back then, actually many of these uh, measures are, are still very le- relevant for, for Serbia. Uh, we restructured the, uh, the, the policy in terms of uh, in introducing measures that support more poor families. And also we didn't increase uh, benefits we expanded the social safety net. We didn't increase benefits, but actually, uh, through several one-off payments, uh, we were able to provide more support to those that are that that were the poorest at the time. And also, uh, we improved uh, database information systems. Uh, and all of that is very relevant for 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 Serbia today as well but the fact that is that uh, during the lockdown uh, only uh, measures targeting pensioners were uh, actually implemented and i believe that we have to look at uh, the relevance of the policies and measures during the uh, the lockdown because there might be the second wave. I mean, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> the future is, uh, is uh, important and let's hope that the second wave is not going to happen. But uh, I think that we need to analyze also what we have done during the lockdown because really many, many families, extremely poor families were, uh, were in the darkest uh, situation.
0: Absolutely, we have to be ready, ready for COVID, ready, and uh, who knows a second wave? Uh, let's have, certainly hope not. Uh, when it comes to funding, if I can turn now to Ulrike Long in at CEDAR, uh you heard from Gordana Matkovic in Serbia that, um, of course, you know they're not going to get they're not going to get bailouts. A lot of your work, CEDA's work, is is in Africa. If you look back to the 2008 financial crisis, just sticking with learning from history. Uh, While considered global, it did not really hit sub-Saharan Africa with quite the same force as elsewhere, but that COVID-19 really changes everything, doesn't it? And why do you think this, and what we've learned from other crises in history, that we should be adopting and indeed adapting um, to the current situation, Ulrike Long?
5: Well, I think it's... um... The the financial crisis of 2008 did not hit Africa so hard as we had thought maybe from the beginning, from the initial stages, uh, largely because Africa was not so integrated into the global economy, Um, which but now we see that the COVID-19 will hit it hard, both uh, the health consequences and through the economic consequences. And I think what we have learned from history is that now we have this major crisis, but it will not be the last crisis that comes. So we need to build systems that can take on the crisis that come. And some countries or quite a few countries are actually facing the pandemic crisis simultaneously as other crises. Somalia is preparing a response to the pandemic and to the locals. So, So in this double challenges and combined with other challenges. But I think one important lesson is also that we cannot afford to save ourselves out of the crisis. We need to invest in social protection to build a stronger economies also for the future. And we know that uh, social protection also has positive effects for the economy. Um, not only through preventing individuals from falling into extreme poverty and through supporting consumption, but it also supports uh, the functioning of markets. Uh, research has shown that one dollar spent in cash transfers actually has a multiplier effect of one point, up to 1.27 to 2.5 dollars on the local economy, according to research from the transfer project. So, I think that is something to keep in mind. You mentioned the transfer project. Uh,
0: This is this is uh, potentially replicable for the future, Uh, and they say that COVID-19 is going to be a game changer for social protection. So, given the fact that the generosity of the Nordic countries is is very well known you're going to have a shrinking amount of money that's going to go out into uh, into the pot into supporting other countries how do you make the argument for investments uh and you know what kind of vision do you see in a post-covid 19 uh world for social protection do you see more of the kind of transfer cash transfer uh projects in uh, in and that kind of uh,
5: those kinds of projects um Yes, and I think uh, we, we see that now. We expect that Swedish development aid will decrease because it's it's one uh, percent of the growth national income, and the income of Sweden will decrease. But at the same time, we have set the priority is is income generating, supporting income generation, including social protection and supporting health systems. We, those will be the priorities. So I do expect that we will continue to prioritize social protection. And we need to find ways to expand social protection, um, to because we see it's very, it's uh, it has very wide effects, and we know it's very well researched. We know that it has wide effects for decreasing multidimensional poverty. So it is an enabler not only for income generation but also for reaching other sustainable development goals and um, so i think we need to see social protection it's a human right and it, and it's important for the individual but it's also a key asset for the long-term development of societies if we don't develop the human capacity capital of societies then the challenges for societies for bouncing back and for rebuilding uh, will be much much higher and um, We also see that we risk breaking the social contract with the state if we don't decrease inequalities. And we also and we risk increasing social um, tensions and social despairs, which will also be negative for the long-term development. And I think the natural development cooperation can support and should support, but national states also need to take the main responsibility for developing social protection systems. But we can also open up um, for other, I think other actors should also be invite, invited and can take a role in, in uh, Sweden. We have also seen businesses engaging to support, uh, to provide income support for their suppliers in, in low-income countries.
0: Thank you, Ulrike. Uh, turning now to you, uh, Dr. Joan and Yanuki in Addis Ababa right now, the African Child uh, Policy Forum. Uh, You've heard from CEDA, with a big, big support in in Africa, uh, the need for governments to take on more themselves as well, but also facing this is uh, investments for for countries being able to support um, projects such as the cash transfers. Uh, What do you think about the situation right now for African countries, given the fact that you've been involved in many other crises uh, in your time, Ebola and so on, Is the continent ready for what's coming up?
4: Um, Thank you, Sarah. And as you've said, rightly, Africa has seen multiple crises. Ebola is one, there's HIV, there's the protracted armed conflicts, environmental disasters. And there have been a lot of learnings from this and really helping us to think of how prepared are we. But as I say that, I want to also recognize that Even before COVID, there have been challenges in terms of financing of social services and social protection and the other element of building really robust systems and structures to provide the necessary social protection to families and vulnerable children. So if we look at these two elements, financing and systems, At both levels, it is going to be quite a tall order and quite a challenge for for the continent, for governments, and so we really must brace ourselves. Um, If I may look at the element of financing, really, first we see that in general on the African continent, social protection has not been one of those priority government investment areas. So in terms of allocation of financial resources, this has not been one of the areas that has progressively increased, but in some countries has stunted. But this does not stop countries, however, from really digging deep into their reserves and seeing what else can be done in terms of really increasing the resources to to this um, social protection. At this level of how ready we are, we can already see countries have introduced new measures in terms of, um, for instance, the, the social safety nets. We have seen different countries introducing the cash transfer programs, food safety nets. Um, the feeding programs, which however have been disrupted, and even subsidized or free healthcare, though really not quite the universal um, health insurance that we would like to see. So those do put the countries at a place where good steps have been taken, but a lot needs to be done. But really coming back to the element of um, of, um, social systems and structures, I think a lot was learned from Ebola and HIV. And if I may just share one or two learnings. It's really the value of having integrated multisectoral structures and systems that bring together the different agencies and, and ministries. And that's what will prevent us having efforts towards flattening one curve and forgetting that there are other emerging curves, as you said at the introduction. Because this would then target all elements from the health to the economic, to the you know health, education, if it's some um, prevention of violence, if it's about hunger, all of these things would then be addressed simultaneously through an integrated coordinated fashion. So the Ebola response showed us that this can be done. At the same time, it was during the time of Ebola that we saw that the lockdown measures can have very severe impacts on children and vulnerable families. There was increased reports at that time of sexual violence against girls who stayed at home. Girls never went back to schools. So even now, we have to think very early on, how do we engage communities, because they are enormously resourceful, they are resilient, they have brilliant ideas and can make enormous contribution into really strengthening and shaping how social protection plays out. But we must actively do this, first by giving them the necessary opportunities, information, and then being consistent and deliberate about creating awareness um, so they can then respond appropriately. Thank you, Joan. I'm going to turn now to uh, Dominic
0: Richardson. Uh, from the research that you and your team have been doing, and from what you've heard so far, uh, clearly the fiscal space to support those hardest hit—that you've heard from Joan, you heard from Cedar earlier, and indeed marginalised communities in Eastern Europe—what are the what what kind of learnings uh, have you seen from the past, Dominic, and uh, the kinds of particularly focused, of course, on children and families with the austerity that's hitting them now.
7: Uh, thanks again, Sarah. I realise I didn't introduce myself before. I'm <laughs> Dominic Richardson, I'm the Chief of Social and Economic Policy at the UNICEF Office of Research in Ochanti. And what we've been focusing our work on, what we prioritised our, our initial uh, research response on was To rapidly summarise the fiscal and social protection responses to health and economic crises since 2000, we wanted to learn uh, from the past. And the findings that that we've put together show that fiscal stimulus is is notably notably less effective than social protection policies when seeking to protect children and families from the worst effects of a crisis. Um, Indeed, from those, we found cash transfers, food supports, including school meals, which is a challenge in COVID times, uh, social services and job programs were the most effective responses and these really fitted in the social assistance uh, line of, of uh, social protection and they were found to help families meet uh, income health education and, and work needs social insurance had a role unemployment employment weather insurance mitigating effects indeed but these did not spill over in the same way as the social assistance policies did but on the question of austerity when we looked at austerity um, wherever pursued, uh, austerity measures were universally negative for families and children. Insofar, we found no positive or contrasting evidence. Um, We found examples of austerity measures in 91 of 128 countries for which we found data. The idea that it was something pursued mainly by high-income countries is not the case. Um, And we found austerity effects on the health of parents. More children were put into institutional care extreme poverty risks including creation of homelessness, suicide, uh, crime rates increased and most worryingly of all in COVID times is the uh, outbreak of infectious disease which may talk to uh, a second wave. Um, turning to some of the things the colleagues uh, on, on online have been saying, um, the re- recommendations we put together based upon those the, that review, um, is first of all to recognise the complexity of COVID-19 and that we haven't really experienced it before in this way uh, and it affects the multiple multiple aspects of family lives and children's rights and requires a coordinated response. The type of integrated uh, and multi-sector response I think that uh, Dr. Dr. Joan was, was uh, referring to. Um, our work on the macroeconomic uh, trends which we've been doing since following the global financial crisis, if I just talk to those a second, uh, did show uh, deep and persistent contractions in many countries uh, from deep V-shaped quick rebound effects, uh, from U-shaped two or three-year deep effects and from L-shaped recessions in other countries, uh, long lasting enough that they ran into further crises before they recovered to 2007 levels. And as I said, we've done some work on, let we call it elasticities, but it's the associations between economic contraction and children's well, uh, well-being outcomes. Uh, and we, we can see a percentage change, as I say, in extreme poverty, food insecurity, uh, and so on. Uh, our evidence points towards social protection as being the most effective mitigating factor to crises. Um, but when, when we'll talk about finances, and I don't know whether you want me to speak to that now, Sarah? I think, uh, I think we're going to pick that up again uh, in a couple of minutes, Dominic. Thank you for, for suggesting that.
0: Uh, we're going to go very soon to a from Q, Q and a from the, uh, from the participants, from the audience and uh, and then we'll be coming into a solutions period in in a minute i'm just going to turn finally now to uh yugo gentilini to pick up some of the points earlier you were first and now last but not least uh from what you from what you've heard uh yugo gentilini the social protection responses for families how would you rate them who's getting it right who's getting it wrong
2: thank you sarah um uh, maybe it's a little early uh to to speak about uh uh performance in general but um i think that you rightly mentioned that the the crisis could be a game changer for for social protection but it's also possible that social protection might be a game changer for the crisis we'll we'll see when when the full evidence is in what we see is i think at the moment an unprecedented um, use and expansion of uh, uh, social protection uh programs we see over a thousand measures out there in over 190 countries. Um, Nearly a billion people are being covered by cash transfers introduced for for COVID uh, purposes. So we see an average scale-up rate in the cash transfer program and their generosity being more than doubled. And um, uh, with uh, uh, Pamela Dale at uh, at UNICEF, we we estimated that there are 164 child-related programs in 95 countries mostly in the form of cash, but also in kind and often provided in an integrated manner. Um, I think that the crisis is also shedding light on the range of uh, innovations in delivery. Um, There are 57 countries that have uh, social registries of various forms that cover about 20, 21% of the population, and we're seeing that those expansions uh, rely on those uh, uh, registries, but not only. They also Uh, countries combine those information systems with other administrative databases, sometimes in different sectors, like in in the health sector for Morocco. And we see that payments in countries like uh, Brazil, Colombia, Jordan, uh, Morocco itself, uh, Bangladesh and Pakistan have been innovating enormously uh, with the crisis, remote onboarding, simplified customer due diligence, simplified SMS-based platforms, increased transaction limits, interoperability of systems, use of basic accounts, we see a lot of innovations in payments. So overall, I think there is some mild optimism uh, for what is happening. At the same time, 60% of those programs are new. Um, 25% of them are one off and and most of the programs uh, last for three months. So we, we, we don't know whether the augmented social protection is just crisis response or if the crisis is moving social protection towards a new longer term equilibrium in terms of scale of support, 20% of the world is covered, uh, 2% in in Africa. 2% of the population uh, in Africa is covered through this new wave of social protection. Uh, And while the world spends about 0.6% of GDP on social protection as part of the crisis, if we exclude high-income countries, we see that that spending is actually $1 per person in low-income countries and about uh, 4 to 5 four to five dollars on average in Africa, South Asia and the Middle East and Northern Africa.
0: That's a staggering figure there uh, from, from the World Bank, Yugo Gentilini, two percent into social protection in Africa, that's stunning. Uh, hold that thought, we're running a little behind time, I'm going to go now to uh, hand over to my colleague David Anthony who's going to make you all look a little bit further into the future uh, with the wisdom of hindsight and uh and the, the crystal ball of the future if you like on cash transfers and how to scale up beyond just that very short crisis response because this crisis that's about to hit us is uh, in in its full force it's going to be with us for a quite a while, quite a while to come uh, and not just because of covid-19 itself david over to you for the q a
1: thanks sarah um thanks to all the audience for their great questions and to the panelists um, for responding so well. Many of the questions posed by the audience have been uh, already answered by some of the interventions of the panelists, but there's one that really springs to mind um, about the promotion of universal child benefits as potentially not only something that could come out of the COVID crisis as a standard policy response, but also to help kickstart the economic recovery. Uh, what I'd like to pose this particular question is to Joan, to uh, Natalia and to Ugo. what do you think about the universal child benefits? Uh, could they be something that comes as a standard practice or is it a little bit more complicated than that? Starting with you, Joan.
4: Thank you David. Um, I think you you asked a question that really at the top of the African child policy forum. And in all, we advocate very strongly for increasing budget allocation, resource allocations to child protection. And as we do this, it's in an environment where social social protection on its own is not very high up on the agenda for a lot of African governments. So let alone child protection. So when we're talking about increasing the allocation to child protection, we are faced with um, an environment where every progressive year you find diminished allocation of public resources to child protection agencies so is it something that we aspire for yes and it needs to be very comprehensive to really look at at a child in its in a child's entirety so that it becomes not only universal in terms of coverage of population of an african population where more than 50 percent are children but also covers a child in terms of all child rights, taking the indivisibility of all all forms of rights. So it is something that we are strongly advocating for. But I also want to put a caveat that universal child protection would would not then look like one thing. It would not look in, for instance, if I may take South Sudan, it would not look in South Sudan the same way it would look in Egypt or in South Africa, simply because it also has to be progressively realized. But what we want to see now is the political commitment and the goodwill to ensuring that this progressive increase in resource allocation and prioritizing prioritization of of children and social protection within national government and also African Union level. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Joan. Same question to Natalia.
4: Joan covered it beautifully. I think
3: definitely from the UNICEF perspective, this is the one of the key areas that we really need to have a stronger voice is definitely one of the of the core programs and the core approaches that need to be at the center of the discussion in this current context and as we see what is the the next wave around social protection. Um, Also very linked to what Joanne said, it's not just one path fits all, it has to be very specific to the different multiple vulnerabilities of children, what are the different sectors that need to be linked to this particular program. And really building this broader, broader system that is providing support through different sectors health, education, and and that's I think a very important message that social protection is not only The responsibility of one ministry or one sector social protection is responsibility of health, education, nutrition, agriculture, finance to really build a comprehensive um, approach um, around it. No, Um, I think it's also important to understand that there's also changes within the, the life cycle. So how that child grant will look in the first thousand days versus um, you know, children growing from five to 10 to adolescents and youth, and also uh, a, a very sp- specific focus to the adequacy of those, of those programming. And lastly, um, I think more important that if it's important or not, which I think it is, and looking at the pathways to reach that particular goal and how different countries will have different ways of reaching it and different modalities to be able to, to achieve a, a, a sense of universal coverage and effective, effective impact.
1: Thanks Natalia, you will for the last.
2: I think that both uh, Joanna and Natalia put it beautifully. Um, I think that when it comes to children, we really need an integrated approach, an approach that includes services, include also transfers and um, uh, when it comes to transfers uh, both refer to the progressive uh, realization um, but also universal child benefits can definitely be and should be part of the toolbox then the specific shape that programs would take uh, would probably uh, depend on how that program would sit within the overall social protection system and, and policymakers uh would look at what exactly are the ob- objectives to be pursued um, how do they, what are the specific trade-offs that may merge between the adequacy and generosity and benefits uh, with the cost, the source of financing and the political economy. So it should be part of the toolbox, but also should be some degree of adaptation based on those uh, context-specific circumstances.
1: Thanks, Hugo. Gordana, Dom and Ulrika, um, I'll come back to you in the second half of our Solutions Show, when there'll be many more questions like this. But for now, we're going to go to our poll question. What we're going to do is pose to our audience a question um, that we have chosen to really test what they think about what you've said. So the question is just coming up now. If you were Minister of Finance and had to decide on where to put the limited finances you had for social protection, would you A, target those families and households considered the most affected by COVID-19? B. Provide some form of benefits to all families with children, or C. Target only means testing families with children. Okay, unfortunately the our host and I'm, a...
0: going to, I'm going to leave you all with uh, pretending to be ministers of finance. Unfortunately, I won't be able to vote. So while you go into the solutions time where you'll be looking at the poll, I'm going to say goodbye, but do join us again in two weeks same time same place for what the experts say on coronavirus and children and continued learning this will be on thursday the 18th of june in the meantime keep voting and see you in two weeks time
1: thank you sir we'll have a short break and we'll resume solutions in a bit Welcome back to the Solution Session of our Leading Minds webcast. Um, as we came out of it, we had a poll which talked about what you would do if you were a Minister of Finance. Uh, around 75% of the audience were able to respond and um, we'll see the poll results right now. They make for very interesting uh, reading. So, um, the question was, if you were Minister of Finance and had to decide on where to put the limited finances you had for social protection, what would you do? Uh, the majority, 44% of respondents, said that they would target those families and households concerned uh, considered the most affected by COVID-19. Just behind was some provision of benefits to all families with children, and the means tested of families with children seemed to be a distant third. Um, maybe I'm going to go to uh, Godana for this. What do you think, Godana, about the poll results? Do you think they're broadly in line with accepted wisdom, or do you would you do something different if you were Minister of Finance? You were in government, so uh, you had a hand in making these kinds of decisions.
6: Yes, I don't know why you insist that it uh, has to be Minister of Finance, because uh, actually. Um, it was not the case in in, in our government for many uh, decisions of that sort. Uh, I would target families um, considered the most affected, but this uh, I don't think that it's realistic because uh, when you have this uh, the time frame within the time frame and the resources, you you probably don't know who is. Uh, you don't really know who is uh, affected you might have some uh, some hints but uh, you don't really know so in case of serbia i will actually uh, target additional support for example to roma settlements and to 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 some uh, specific uh, areas in the country but in general yes i think that um, mean tested measures um, in the countries which are not very very rich uh, make more sense because otherwise you have to uh, usually you would have to give much lower level of benefits if you, you if you go with um, with universal benefits. But again, universal benefits for example for children uh, with disability uh, in some specific areas uh, like Roma settlements uh, I think it makes sense.
1: Thanks Kuldana, I'm going to go to Dom. Dom you oversee the transfer project, you've done a lot of work in this area and you've just done an excellent literature review on some of the policies what are some of the best practices that you're seeing give us two or three of the best practices you're seeing at the country or even sub national level in response to covid in the area of social protection
7: thank you thank you for that question uh, david that's a really tough one um <laughs> i'm not really i'm not really sure what to say uh, just to be clear that the the transfer project is a collaboration so so i uh, oversee the team that works here at at Inocenti, uh, and the work that we've been doing on unconditional cash transfers uh, shows their effect on, on poverty and a range of associated outcomes, like improvements in health, education, employment, safety, mental health, and so on. Um, the, the real trick, I think, now, if I can just slightly turn the question, is what can we learn from those in order uh, to put together the most effective uh, COVID responses in terms of social protection? Um, and at this chance, I want to squeeze in, if I can, a little reflection on the on the costs. Um, now, the best uh, the, uh, the work by Ugo and the work by the IMF has given us a, a chance to compare provisionally some of the costs that go in to fiscal stimulus compared to uh, social protection. Um, and I mentioned earlier that our review was showing a very strong favour towards social protection responses as 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 being uh, mitigating factors. Um, and uh, Ugo also mentioned some of the social protection responses. Not, they're not fully matured, of course, and uh, we don't know what's going to happen exactly. Uh, but so far, they are temporary. And uh, um, in amongst the in the, the high-income countries that we've been looking at recently, uh, around fifteen out of a hundred uh, specifically focused uh, uh, on children. In terms of uh, the the costs of the fiscal the fiscal stimulus. Um, we're looking at uh, a a difference, a ratio of about one to six. So provisional data shows that for every one dollar spent on families, about six is going through fiscal stimulus. So we're talking about uh, loans and uh, um, equity injections for for businesses and and so on. Uh, This, remember, in light of the overall evidence base. Uh, With that type of money, and we're talking about so far Uh, Countries like Germany and Italy uh, um, uh, investing about 30% of their GDP, equivalent to 30% of their GDP on fiscal stimulus, Uh, we should think big with social protection. The ratio is uneven, the investment levels are very high, Um, we should be thinking about going in at scale uh, and learning from what we've learned. Uh, um, in terms of the programmatic evidence, and all of the the collaboration around the transfer project, and support from Cedar Diffid, all the, all the rest, and our colleagues in North Carolina, North Carolina University, and elsewhere, have really given us a head start on this. And examples uh, of scaling, uh, good good examples of cash transfers are in Malawi. Underlining all of this. Again, our colleagues have said that governance is complex and country by country, there'll be differences, and we really need to understand those well. Uh, we should see this as part of supporting system strengthening overall uh, in an integrated, uh, balanced uh, welfare system for children. Services, cash, well linked uh, to the rest of the system. Um, that's, that's my answer, David. I hope it's, it's what you were looking for.
1: Tom, it's a great answer, <laughs> I'm going to pass to Ulrike, Ulrike you're you you you're, you're representing the donor agency, what are you looking for in your response to developing low and middle income countries right now, what are you prioritizing and why?
5: Uh, well, we are prioritizing income generating possibilities, so we are looking uh, and part of that, a large part of that is a social protection. Uh, trying to look at how can we can we support uh, uh, additional social protection initiatives or can we uh, tweak the social protection systems that are there so that they are more effectively meeting the current ongoing crisis and then of course we're also looking at an economic response other income generating possibilities supporting the ability of of um, businesses to to also bounce back and we are looking at supporting health systems but we have new programs or adjustments expansions of support to social protection in guatemala mozambique um, sudan Zambia, ethiopia kenya somalia uganda tanzania zimbabwe so there's an ongoing work which of course is with the governments and with multilateral agencies and other bilateral donors so we're in this intensive uh, coordination and uh, we also see increased use of cash transfers in humanitarian aid which is closely linked so we try to exchange notes and have a, a close cooperation with our colleagues in the humanitarian support but then we try to always look at each country individually or specifically because i mean i depending what you choose also depends on the situation on the of the country. What is the p- poverty situation in that specific country? Who are the poorest? Who are living in most extreme poverty? How, how are the inequalities? And so we try to look at the uh, the specifics of poverty in each country, and then also we uh, engage in dialogue with governments because. Social protection requires um, political commitment, long term. So, and it requires political choices. When we support capacity development for building social protection social protection systems, we try to support building of comprehensive systems, and that stand on several legs. So, it's not just one one. It needs to be solution. It needs to be a life cycle approach, and it needs to be a multi-sectoral approach, which Natalia highlighted. Um, so I think that building a comprehensive social protection system takes time, but it's important, and I think we have to take this opportunity to try to scale up the pace in how we can build, support building comprehensive social protection systems.
1: Thanks, Elvika. Natalia, I'm going to move to you now Uh, and building on what Ulrika said, there's been a lot of talk about systems strengthening over the years, systems building, and yet somehow we don't seem to land, we don't seem to build the systems. Why is this the case and what will it take to change the game in building the social protection systems that Ulrika refers to? I think
3: there's been some progress. I think there are some countries that are definitely defined their approach and strategy and social Way, No, so even in low income countries, when you read social protection policies, they don't focus on a program, they focus on different pillars, really trying to bring different sectors and different types of programs together. Um, but then it comes from the policy strategy to practice. And there's where some of the challenges happen, right? What are the the incentives for health, nutrition or dedication to put to allocate their budgets into social protection programs, for example, and that's and that for me has been one of the clear challenges in bringing the systems together, to really bringing different sectors to be equal partners and equal contributors to a programmatic approach. Um, and then the other, I think, challenges is more the, the nuts and bolts the nitty gritty of really bringing together the different pieces of a, a system. How do I connect participants of a cash on for program with those that are also able to access health insurance, for example, or how to, and, and even though the, the work of registries has been hopefully taking taking more space there's definitely um, an, the, the need to, be, to provide much more technical assistance in those particular elements. Now, I think that many governments have allocated their resources, have committed to expand, um, and I think the expertise and what they're asking for from, from us, from developing agencies and, and development partners, is to really put some of, of our expertise and resources in making these commitments and strategies into, into practice. I think today the the COVID situation, and that's I think what we are all saying, that is giving us the momentum and showing that one program is important, but not enough to be able to address the multiple impacts that this type of pandemic is creating, and if, and and very much echoing what many people say that this is not a one-time event. You know that unfortunately we are in a context where we are facing multiple compounding risk, increasing types of of um, of risk and shocks. Um, and, and we need therefore to have a much more broader perspective and hopefully that will um, push some of our of our governments to really um, grasp the importance of having a much more broader approach and a commitment and that that, that that translates into commitment of resources from different sectors, no, and that requires to have a, a strong intra supra ministerial push up from a prime minister from uh you know planning or finding the ministry that say this is what we want to commit to, this is what this is the vision that we want to see in terms of social protection. And we we require commitments from different sectors to make this happen. No? So it's it's a it's a political will versus identifying right incentives to make the different pieces fail to get, uh, come together.
1: Thanks, Natalia. Ugo, you work for the bank, and the bank has a very strong role to play when economic crisis hits such as has happened with COVID. Uh, what do you think the role is to play in advising governments on what they should do about social protection and how they should balance that with their debt management? Because many countries are facing a situation where not only are they getting ahead hit on their tax revenues and inflows, but they're seeing a mounting burden of public debt.
2: Yeah, no, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for the question, David. Um, I think, in general, I like to pick up also on both uh, and uh, um, and others have said, uh, uh, Dominique in particular, has said earlier that, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, the cost and the fiscal space for social protection, we need to approach the question with facts and the right mindset. Um, of course, there are um, hard choices to make when it comes to financing, but let's remember that what goes into social protection goes into the economy that's why we see a number of high-income countries having a very large scale and oftentimes universal even if one of um, or with a limited number of transfers injection of cash because they know that people spend money and that money creates the demand and, and and generate multipliers we have seen that that micro Micro level in um, in Kenya up to 2.6 in terms of multipliers, uh, which is on the high end of the series of uh, estimates that uh, uh, Urika uh, mentioned earlier. And um, um, at, at the same time, also I think that some of the past crises uh, do offer us uh, some um, um, some insights um, into into financing um, uh, every crisis that I could think of. Um, has led to some form of increase in social protection. Think of Mexico in the mid 90s, Indonesia in 98, Ethiopia in the mid 2000s, uh, Africa after 2010, there is, was an average of 14 programs introduced every year since. And um, uh, in many of those instances, um, existing some existing schemes were replaced. Um, so sometimes new schemes are increased by consolidating national schemes. Other times, we have seen the harnessing and the institutionalization uh, of external uh, programs. Um, In COVID so far, the assistance has been truly additional. Um, As the IMF has shown, there has been a heavy reliance on windfalls and emergency funding or the IMF's exceptional national credit definition, state reserves, contingency funding. And I think that there is an, uh, an opportunity here um if uh, perhaps uh, the crisis given the low energy price prices out there there might at some point be an opportunity to further the subsidy reform agenda but also i think there is a lot of interesting work by Kalp and many others on uh, how to further strengthen the linkages between humanitarian assistance and social protection in a way that enhances coverage but also make uh, make um, uh, transfers and assistance more predictable, so I think really there is a need to connect uh, social protection and domestic resource mobilization. Almost as twin agendas from the get go and, by the way, since we are all getting used to, to clean air, uh, maybe there, there could be more appetite in the future for carbon credits and, and climate related financing.
7: Thanks,
1: Ugo. Thanks very much. Joan, turning to Africa. Now, Africa, uh, the continent where the the child population and the population in general is growing and expanding quickly, what needs to be done here to expand social protection, given these population dynamics?
4: Um, Thanks, David. I think the one, the one principal thing that needs to shift is having children at the center of national government development agendas not children mainstreamed, because we often talk about mainstreaming, inclusion, but children really as a core element of the national development plans and whether it's medium term or long term. And because once that happens, then naturally, you know, the the river follows the direction, you know, the water in the river flows in the same direction. So you will find resources will go in the same way, strengthening of systems will go in the same way, capacity building will go in that way. And, and even in a in, on the continent where we will be struggling as we are getting into the peak of this crisis and coming out of it. We will be struggling with how we fund, and I'm picking the last issue that Ugo just discussed, the issue of funding. So as we are struggling with how do we, f- what do we prioritize at national level, at continental level, then it becomes very clear that if children are at the top of the national agenda, then automatically child protection gets a huge chunk of, of the um, resources, but also children are really put at the center of social justice measures. And I want to just mention two things that are important to share here. I mean, the African countries will obviously be thinking, um, where are we going to get additional funding if um, our big traditional donors don't have it? And my constant challenge to African governments is, where is the money that goes to corruption? Where is the money that is never accounted for within uh, the public financing systems? And if we could just get that unlawfully diverted money and unlawfully wasted resources and really divert it into these measures, if we could ensure that the taxes that are collected are really used in social development, then we can be able to see that children being at the top, you will naturally then find that in an integrated system that more money flows to that. It is going to be a challenge, David. It's not going to be easy, but really, Africa will only rip the economic dividend of its demographics if we invest in children thank you
1: thank you joan thanks very much i'm going to ask a final question to each of our panelists uh before we wrap up and it's really a very generic one what do you think will change the game for social protection what do we have to do to not have this conversation the next time we have a crisis i'm going to start with the 30 seconds please
5: What we would need to do to change the game? Well, I think we need to see that social protection is not only a cost, which is coming up here. Uh, As Hugo said, what goes into social protection goes into the economy. But it's also, that is one aspect. But the other aspect is developing human capital. And we can't afford to not uh, see children develop to their full potential. So I hope that we will have a game changer when it, when people start seeing that investing is investing in social protection does cost, but but it is an investment we can't afford not to make.
1: Thanks, Ulrike. And thanks very much for your participation, Dom. Same question: What was the game changer?
7: Um. I think that there's a there's going to be a reflection I think on the value of public public goods or generally what we're seeing with the crisis is something that is a, a universal phenomena that's affecting uh, millions of people regardless of, of, of their economic situation and their social situation um, and I think it's going to allow the discourse to, to change um, and I hope it changes soon enough that we get in before Um, attempts to follow old examples of austerity and in time to strengthen our our social protection responses and indeed to to center children at the discussion of of social protection reform. Uh, I I think without the political economy for reform, a lot of what we do uh, and a lot of what we promote can fall on uh, arid ground. I mean, it, it, it doesn't. People might not respond to it as well uh, without seeing the rationale for change. I think COVID is is providing that, um, and I also think that we we we're looking at this um, um, uh, from a, a perspective of some understanding of what happened relatively recently with the global f- financial crisis, and a much more evidence uh, um, on on how countries have responded to to crises of various forms all over the world. And so we should be able to do it. From a stronger evidence base, and so I just underline the importance of of research and the type of work that we're all uh, t- trying to do, um, um, and conversations like this. Um, so I, I, I just I, just a voice for, for for sort of standing up and advocating for children from a strong evidence base, um, and and promoting the change we want to see.
1: Thanks, Dom. And thanks for coming on the show. Gordana, the same question. What do you think is the game changer here?
6: I think we are always going to have discussions like this because (laughs) there are competing needs and uh, if you want also uh, different different approaches. But uh, I also believe that the key is to understand the social protection uh, and especially social assistance as uh, the investment in, in human capital, uh, and then uh, we will again have many competing <laughs> needs and, uh, and opinions. But it will be uh, it will be uh, easy to to easier to persuade the governments uh, to to act differently.
1: Thanks very much, Kudan, and thank you for your participation. Over to Natalia, Natalia. You've been in many, worked on many different continents on this particular issue. Uh, You have a a really great perspective. What do you think is the game changer?
3: Oh, David, you're great questions. Um, I think we have the evidence, the social and the economic evidence. I think we have the momentum. I do think that we need maybe different types of champions. So, not coming necessarily from the social policy sector, from the education or health sectors, but having the economic, the finance, the climate sector, the agriculture sector, the business sector, really understanding the value of having this type of, of protection. Um, and you know, having very strong messages from the finance donors, from the IMFs, from the different donors that are really positioning this social program, but um with its in asset investment really making a change in managing risk and protecting families, and most importantly, in generating economic impact. So I I do think that we've been too shy, maybe in, in opening up the the audience around social protection and talking about you know different sectors that are at the same time linked, but not going beyond that. You no, know? and and I would I think that will be something that can change a bit that the the way the messages are are put put forth.
1: Thanks very much, Natalia, and good to see you again. Thanks for coming on the webcast, Joan. Over to you. I'm going to ask you the same question, Joan, but with a little twist. What do you think would be the game changer for women, as well as children?
4: Ah, Okay. How much time do we have here, David? (laughs) No, we we
1: don't have much time, Joe. you know. (laughs) In 30
4: seconds. All right. Yes. I'm not simply because when you bring in women, I get very excited. But um, uh, I think the game changer really here is the political will. And I'm really bringing in women, girls, children together. What's really holding back everything that the other panelists have said, in my view? is really the political will to allocate the resources, set up the programs, bring all actors together, coordinate them effectively, and really see that investing in children, investing in girls, investing in in women, is really the core means. It's the greatest asset that all countries, that the world has, the people. So investing in these people is really the only way to development. So for me, I think the game changer is just pure political will and commitment. Thanks.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks. It's great to meet you. And thanks for coming on the webcast. And finally, to you, you what do you think is the game changer for social protection?
2: Thank you, David, and thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thanks to all my fellow speakers and panelists. Uh, pleasure to join you. Um, look, I I also think that we will continue discussing it, but I also see that every time we're discussing it, we discuss it, We we build on progress. So I think there is a story we are in much better state today based relative to 10 years ago and 10 years ago we were in much better position than in the early in the late 90s so I think there is a clear trajectory of progress so that's that's good news but look to understand what will happen in social protection we need to look at what's happening in societies and this will, would include considering the political economy of change social protection reflects societal preferences and attitude towards redistribution. So the question is whether COVID would change the societal attitudes and demand for social protection and whether the pandemic would be a sufficient catalyst for that change and whether the institutional framework that would absorb such change would be similar or require alterations in the time frame to do so. So there are some quite deep issues there, but at the same time I see that there are a number of developments that may stay with us. Uh, One maybe is the universality in administrative information systems, Uh, the composition and scale of social protection can vary, but there should be an ability to potentially reach everyone. Uh, Where things were made simpler, uh, for example with remoteness in delivery, this may become more permanent. And where things were made simpler at the expense of uh, large components of a program, for example, waiving work in public courts, that's a, that would require more nuanced discussion. But uh, crisis preparedness will also move center stage, uh, including connecting health early warning systems to social protection programming, more work in urban areas and informal settlements, and more innovations for portable provisions and support to mobile populations and migrants, perhaps in combination with social insurance. Hugo, we'll thanks for the
1: great answer. Thanks to all of our panelists, to Joan, Natalia, Hugo, Gordana, Dom, Ulrika, uh, for coming on and making this a wonderful show. Thanks to my co-host Sarah Crowe for doing a great job as ever. Uh, thanks to our crew behind the scenes who you never see, but without them we wouldn't be able to do this show. And please thanks to all of you who participated. Please join us in two weeks on Thursday the 18th of June at 3 o'clock CET or 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time for the next webcast on coronavirus and continued learning. My name is David Anthony, and have a really good evening or afternoon wherever you are. Goodbye. <music>